been a lot happening in the life of our church this week, uh, caring for the Tom family, uh, finishing up the Fellowship Hall, preparing Maundy Thursday service, uh, musicians making yourselves available, uh, meal trains being set up, and I just want to say thank you. Uh, thank you for all that you've done this week to serve each other. Uh, you did well. Um, it is a joy to lead this body of believers. God will not overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. And my prayer is that by continuing to love one another in these ways, uh, the prayer of Jesus in Matthew 17 will be answered, that the world will know that the Father has sent the Son. If you haven't done so already, grab a Bible and let's turn to Revelation 22, verse 16. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1042. Revelation 22, verse 16. Let's hear the word of the Lord. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is God's word. You know, many have loved watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy. In terms of theatrical awards, most successful in Peter Jackson's trilogy was Return of the King. Eleven Oscars, Best Director, Best Picture, bringing in over $1.1 billion. But one thing people question is whether it had too many endings. Does it end with Frodo and Sam on Mount Doom? The screen goes black. Or with everyone jumping on the bed as the fellowship reunites? Maybe it's when they crown Aragorn. Nope. It must be when Sam marries Rosie. Nope. Frodo must finish Bilbo's book. Now some are off to the gray havens. When's this thing going to end? 
I know all of you who've read the books are saying, we want more. The point, though, is that Peter Jackson had had lots to, to tie up. Many things that, if left undone, wouldn't have made the movie what it is. The book of Revelation is also a story with many endings. Will it end with the return of Jesus? Chapter 19? No. Will it end with the new heaven and the new earth? No. Well, why didn't it end with chapter 22, verse 5? For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's like so much like they shall live happily ever after. But it doesn't end there. What about verse 6? These words are trustworthy and true. Nope. Surely then it's verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. Nope. It just keeps going. We get about nine more uh, little snippets here to, to close out the book. But within this multi-layered ending, we're, we're reminded of this book's purpose. We're reminded how this prophecy comes to the churches in the form of a letter. It began as a letter in chapter 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace. And it ends like a letter in verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. And like other letters in Scripture, it serves a larger pastoral purpose. These things aren't written merely to teach you about the end. They're written to keep you persevering until the end. So even the picture of Jesus' triumph and the, and the imagery of the new heavens and, and the new earth, they're all serving your present endurance. When it comes to verses 16 and 21, 16 to 21, I see four ways to determine whether you're hearing and responding to the message of Revelation rightly. First, if you're hearing and responding to Revelation rightly, then you will acknowledge that Jesus is the true King of all. In verse 16, Jesus reiterates the ultimate authority behind Revelation. I mean, John is the one writing these words down, and he got it from Jesus' angel. But we see in verse 16 the ultimate authority behind this book. Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. And why should we listen to him? Well, he continues, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now, what does it mean for Jesus to be the root and descendant of David? Well, that word there, root, comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And you may recall in Isaiah chapter 10 that God has, has chopped down the nation like a lumberjack chops down the forest. And so when you look out over the horizon, all you see is stumps 
lying everywhere because God's judgment has, has wiped them out. But as you're looking out over this leveled forest, Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Well, Jesse was, was uh, King David's father. And for a branch to come from his roots was for a descendant to come. And this descendant was supposed to sit on the throne and bring God's kingdom on earth. And you, you can read about this king as you keep going through chapter 11 of Isaiah. Verse 2 of Isaiah 11. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, meaning he's not given over to bribes or or hearsay, but with righteousness... He will judge, it says. He will will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Then later, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. His rule even creates a new world. Look at verse 6 of Isaiah 11. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains. So this king reverses the curse, and he's basically making the world into a new Eden. Even better, he makes the entire earth the Lord's sanctuary. By the time you get to chapter 11, verse 9, it says, "...the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord." as the waters cover the sea. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus self-identifies as this king in David's line. When he says, I am the root of David, he's saying, I am the king with that wisdom. I am the king with that righteousness. I am the king with that kind of power and that kind of authority to make the world new again. That's been the message of Revelation the whole time. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 5, and the, the, where, where uh, you will see there Jesus being pointed out as the Lion of Judah, right? The Root of David. But we also see He has conquered as the Lamb. And it's through his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection that he conquers and that he saves. Jesus also identifies himself here as the bright morning star. This title goes back to a prophecy in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Remember Balaam, right? Kind of this pagan, but God forces Balaam to... 
to prophesy blessing over Israel. He was hired out to curse them, but God forces Balaam to prophesy blessing over Israel, and included in his prophecy are these words in, in Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. He says, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So you see a star there and it's being paralleled with this scepter, right? The the scepter in a king's hand and this king is going to crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So where else in the Bible does this promise come about where there's going to be one who crushes the head of evil? It's the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? I think Mike, uh, in, his, uh, in the Maundy Thursday service readings, helped us connect some of those dots the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And, and, and in Numbers 24, it's reaching back and it's grabbing that imagery. And Balaam's prophecy is now foreseeing a star or a ruler, a king. And he will rise out of Israel and crush the enemies of God's people. When Jesus says, I am the bright morning star, he is saying, I am that king. I'm rising like a bright morning star, and the glory of my reign will prevail. My enemies will be put beneath my feet. But what does that mean for the words of Revelation, then? Well, it means that every word carries the king's authority. We can't read this word and treat it lightly. Earlier this week, a brother was sharing how He was discussing Christianity with a family member. And this other family member wasn't a Christian. And he couldn't understand why the others were so unyieldingly committed to Scripture. And the brother responded by saying, Well, this is what it means to bow the knee to Jesus. And the family member objected, Bow the knee? Who does that? Who even talks like that anymore? But you know, we were all bent that way one time until God overcame our resistance. Until God did away with our bias and opened our eyes to the truth. And once you know that Jesus is the true King, you can't help but bow to His authority. You can't help but submit the whole of yourself to following his ways. That's how Jesus' identity here should affect us when we read the book of Revelation. It's a message from the true king who's coming to crush evil and establish his reign. We don't sit over this book as much as this book sits over us. The first step in understanding this book is not grabbing a commentary, though that might prove helpful. It's not acquainting yourself with apocalyptic genre, though that also has its place. 
The first step in understanding this book, and really any book in Scripture, is humbling yourself before the authority of King Jesus. Do you sit before God's Word that way? Do you sit to scrutinize the Scriptures, or do you sit beneath the Scriptures and let them scrutinize you? Jesus. Do you say, Jesus, right? You are king of all. Let your will be done. Make my heart submissive to your commands. If you're hearing Revelation rightly, then you will acknowledge that Jesus is the true king. Second, if you're hearing Revelation rightly, then you will also long for Jesus and look for satisfaction in his kingdom. You will long for Jesus and look for satisfaction in his kingdom. Notice the first two lines of verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Now some will take this to mean that the spirit and the church are pleading with outsiders to come in. So the window for repentance is still open So come, sinners, all of you, come in faith to Christ. I take it a little differently. Uh, Already Jesus has said twice, I am coming soon. We see that in verse 7 and verse 12. And then in verse 20, he says it again, Surely I am coming soon. And the church responds, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And so I take these first two pleas as pleas for Jesus to return. Within Revelation's story, we've encountered the Spirit before. Multiple times we're told that John is in the Spirit when he's writing, when he receives this prophecy, and John has, uh, uh, Jesus had revealed his plan for his kingdom through the Spirit, and now the Spirit himself says, Come, right? Make it happen. He's also the spirit who empowers the church in Revelation, right? The churches might be lampstands, but it is the Holy Spirit who is their light. And that same spirit has ignited a passion in the bride of Christ here to long for Jesus' coming such that his prayers also become their prayers. With the spirit, the bride is here saying, come, Lord Jesus. Now that's within the narrative itself. The spirit and the bride here within the story Revelation is telling. But what about the hearers of the book, like yourself? Well, it also says, and let the one who hears say, come. Who are those who hear? They are the ones that remain open to God's testimony in this book. They are not those that are shutting their ears. I don't want to hear it anymore. They're not the ones pushing God's word away. They are welcoming God's testimony about Jesus. And when you welcome this book's testimony about Jesus, your longings will become more and more like the Spirit's longings. The more you soak in this prophecy, the more you will become like the ideal bride in this book who echoes the Spirit's longings for Jesus to complete his work. So is that your longing? That Jesus come. 
Does your heart cry in prayer, Lord Jesus, come, bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? Then notice the other plea as well. Verse 17. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Now, we discussed this before in chapter 21, verse 7. To be thirsty means you're desperate for God to, and, and you come to Him for life. But this idea of taking the water of life without price, it comes from Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 55 closes a very important section. You might find a few rays of hope in Isaiah's chapters 1 to 39, but those chapters largely pronounce judgment on, on Israel. And then once that judgment, that word of judgment has passed, Isaiah 40 begins God's message of comfort Comfort my people. God is now speaking words for their redemption, their comfort, right? And, and Isaiah 55 stands as the climactic invitation from the God of comfort who has, who has opened the way to, to life. And it begins this way. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich Food, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. That's how it begins. Now, to understand this invitation, we need to understand the imagery behind it. Isaiah is here using Old Covenant language to describe Israel's pitiful spiritual condition. For instance, Israel has, uh, was completely dependent on the Lord to provide water in the promised land. And if they obeyed the covenant, well, God supplied the water and the land was, was plentiful. But if they rejected God's covenant, the, the people suffered. And so to be thirsty was to be under the curse of God. And that's exactly how Isaiah portrays Israel in exile. Uh, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 30 of Isaiah, uh, the people, they give themselves to idols. And, and so God says, You shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. So you, the people, will be like that. Like a garden without wider water. Or uh, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 3. The people don't regard the deeds of the Lord. And so he says, therefore, my people, they go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. 
And then, when he speaks of, uh, of those without money here, he who has no money come by and eat. So we, we've covered those who thirst, he who has no money. What does that mean? Well, if you go back in chapter 44, verse 6 of Isaiah, we learn why they have no money. They work hard, they get paid in silver, and you know what they do? Then they weigh out the silver, and they take it down to the silversmith and have him fashion an idol out of the money they made. That's why they have no money. They've bankrupted themselves on chasing their idols. Isn't it amazing that God is inviting these kind of people? Desperately thirsty covenant breakers. Spiritually bankrupt idolaters. God invites them to come and to nourish themselves in a new relationship with himself. For God to invite the thirsty to the waters was for God to say, your curse is removed. Come and drink. The lingering question, of course, is how is is it that the most holy God could invite such covenant breakers and idolaters so freely to himself? Isn't there a price to pay for sin? Doesn't the covenant lay all all the penalties out? There must be punishment for sin. Yeah, it does lay it out like that. But we have to realize that this invitation in chapter 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, it follows another chapter Isaiah 53. If you look at Isaiah 53, what we find is that someone else paid the price. God paid the penalty for their idolatry by crushing the suffering servant in their place. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 5. He, the servant, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So we see here the guilt that we incurred for sin must be punished. But we also see the Lord's solution was to place the punishment that we deserved on the servant. And so our entry here to the waters, we see it comes at his cost. The cost of the servant. And not only that, the servant rises from the dead to give the people he died for righteousness. His righteousness. Listen now to Isaiah 53 verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. 
the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, how is he going to see his offspring if the Lord has crushed him? How's the will of the Lord going to prosper in his hand if the servant has just given himself up as an offering? That's only possible by resurrection. In resurrection, he shall see his offspring. In resurrection victory, he shall prosper. And then comes the righteousness part. It says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. That's how God can say, come without money and without price. Through the death and resurrection of God's servant, Jesus Christ pays it all. Jesus Christ clothes you with his righteousness. And because of that payment, and because of that righteousness, he says, come. You ain't got nothing, but come. I've made the price. Come and drink. For those who come to the Lord as their drink, their sustenance, their life, God will satisfy them totally with his presence. So what about you? Are you thirsty? Have you sought the world's satisfaction and found yourself empty? Do you feel your own need for drink from the waters of God's life? Do you long to be truly satisfied with fullness of life? Then don't hesitate to come to the Lord Jesus. Don't hesitate to come and enter the kingdom through Jesus. He paid your way into God's presence. All who follow Jesus will drink and find themselves satisfied in the kingdom. Third, if you're hearing Revelation rightly, then you will honor Jesus' word in the present. You will honor Jesus' word in the present. Listen to Jesus' warning in verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Now, some have seen, you know, these words here speaking to the, the entirety of Scripture, that, that nobody should add or take away from the 66 books of the Christian canon, and perhaps these words might support that idea indirectly somehow. But if we're judging by the immediate context, the book of this prophecy refers to Revelation alone. The other issue is, that, is to figure out what Jesus means by adding and taking away. I mean, at a minimum, it means altering the message that Jesus intends his church to hear. Like if we added a word to it or took away 
a word from it to make it say something other than what it is. But, it, but it's more than, than just adding or removing words. Consider first John's first century setting. In John's circle, you might say that there is a war of words happening. It's true prophecy versus false prophecy. Uh, so in chapter 2, verse 2 of this, of this book, we, we hear of these false apostles that are troubling the Ephesian church. And then in chapter 2, verse 14, others were holding to the teaching of Balaam, right? He's a type, right, of, of these just false teachers who, who were putting stumbling blocks before Israel and saying, hey, it's okay, you can be part of God's covenant people and have your idols, You can be part of God's covenant people and practice sexual immorality. And then we also heard of Jezebel in chapter 2, verse 20, that she was this prophetess, right? Teaching and seducing my servants, he says, to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. In other words, John's prophecy addresses a setting where some teachers were making room for Christianity and idolatry to coexist in the church. Teachers were making room for Christianity and immorality to coexist in the church. It's not very different from our day, is it? So in that way, these false prophets were either adding to or taking away from what God says to the church by saying, hey, it's all right. We can have Jesus and our sin too. Consider also where this warning appears elsewhere in Scripture. Take Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, for example. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all who followed the Baal of Peor." So these words come in a context where some within Israel were following false idols. And, he's, and, and, and it's, so this adding to the word or taking away from it has to do with living a life. Maybe you're not writing down an extra word or two, but you're living a life that has altered what God has said. Deuteronomy 12.32 is another, and it too comes in a context where God, God is warning the people about idolatry. He says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, meaning in the way the other, all the nations are worshiping Him. For every abominable thing that, he, that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. So what's the steady pattern here? It's more than just adding or removing words from a text. It's choosing a path that runs contrary to God's message. 
It's acting as if God has said something different than what he has actually revealed in the scriptures. Uh, It'd be like the Hindu man I once met who told me how much he loved Jesus Christ and how much he loved the Gospels. But once I pressed further, it became apparent that he loved Jesus along with all the other countless gods in his religion. So he was adding to what God had revealed. Or perhaps we should say he was taking away the exclusive claims of Jesus. Others will do this when they are happy to embrace God's love but are hesitant to affirm his wrath. Others will accept what Jesus says about love, but not when that means you hold them accountable to his word. Others want the prosperity of the kingdom, but not in any way that calls them to take up a cross. Others have been tolerating teachers that say it's okay to be Christian and self-identify as gay. There are also those who claim Jesus, but only insofar as his kingdom is wrapped in red, white, and blue. All of these are examples of adding to or taking away from what God has revealed in this prophecy. And Jesus' warning is clear. We do so to our own peril. Instead, we must honor his words in the way we live now. We must give exclusive allegiance to Jesus and what he says. So when Revelation paints a picture of the world as Babylon and says, you come out of her, my people, then we must listen and follow. And when he says, fear God and give him glory, we must bow at the feet of Jesus and say, you are Lord, we will follow you. And when Revelation discloses God's purpose to destroy idolaters, we repent from the idolatry in our own lives. We must honor Jesus' words in life, or we haven't really heard this message rightly. And then one final point. If you're hearing the message of Revelation rightly, then you will rest in Jesus' grace for endurance. You will rest in Jesus' grace for endurance. Throughout Revelation, you will find words like tribulation, perseverance, trial. You will hear appeals like hold fast and be faithful unto death. You will hear cries from God's people like, How long, O Lord? As we've observed before, Revelation isn't written to a comfortable church. It's written to a church in tribulation. It's for those wearied by the world's persistent evil. So how then will you make it? How then will you be able to keep the words of the prophecy of this book? How will you live a life in a way that aligns with this message, right? And not take away or add to. How will you endure and be faithful to Jesus through all the opposition that you will face for doing so? Verse 21 has our answer. 
the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Grace has to do with God's unmerited favor toward sinners at Christ's expense. Grace is never something that can be earned or worked for even after you're Christian. It's God's free and extravagant generosity in Christ to undeserving sinners. In chapter 1, verse 4, we learned the source of all grace, didn't we? John said, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth to him who loves us and freed us from his sins by his blood, freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. Right? Grace came from that one, right? from the, the triune God of Scripture. The source of all grace is God the Trinity. And we see there in chapter 1, verse 4, that grace had to do with God's ongoing presence with His people in redemption. It had to do with the Spirit building God's kingdom in the face of opposition. It had to do with Jesus dying to make us a kingdom and priesthood to God. And now John is telling us at the end of the book how that same grace from God the Trinity will go with you. What a week we've had as a church. We have mourned. We have asked, how much longer, O Lord? The future looks very different now for the family. Others of you have grown weary with struggles at home. For others, it's challenges in your marriage or challenges at work or challenges finding work. And you don't know what the future holds. Others of you are working hard and you're serving faithfully or you're just tired. Listen to this again. From Revelation chapter 22, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. God will give you the grace necessary to finish the race. He will give grace for every trial you face, every tough job encounter at work. God will supply you with the grace to do it well and under the Lord. Every grace necessary to raise your children every grace to pursue peace with others in this church, every grace to mature in Christ's likeness, every grace to to resist temptation, the Lord will come through for you in everything. For every future day, there will be more grace for you. You can count on the Lord's grace when you go home today and when you go to work tomorrow or to class or to the hospital for that next CT scan. His grace will be there when you, when you go to the next funeral or when you're trying to do life after the funerals. Grace isn't just a past experience for the Christian. It is our future confidence every day. For those in Christ, the Lord has inexhaustible grace. That's what He means by the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. 
It came, it started with grace be to you. Now it's grace be with you as you go out, right? After the pastor stood and read this letter, go out, the grace of the Lord being with you all. He's confident that grace didn't just come to them, grace will go with them. John Newton got it right in the third stanza of his famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Or to quote from the newer song of, uh, that we sing by City of Light, let praise rise up and overflow, my song resound forever, for grace will see me welcomed home to walk beside my Savior. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all, beloved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your prophecy that you gave to John to then give to the churches, which was then handed down to us. And we're thankful for the picture that it gives of Jesus Christ. He's not just the slain lamb. He is the lamb standing before your throne receiving into his hand the seals, the sealed scroll, and breaking it, showing us that he is in control of all things and he will see all things come to pass so that your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us confidence in the days going ahead that this same Jesus who is sovereign, who rules, who's powerful, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, this same Jesus will give us His grace to endure to the end. Our greatest problem, He has already taken care of at the cross. Whatever we face in coming days are nothing compared to that. And thank you If you did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all, how will you not also with him, now risen from the dead, freely give us all things? So we trust in you to provide for whatever comes our way. In Christ's name we pray, and by the Spirit, amen.